Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. everyone. Welcome to High Truths. It's always an educational endeavor to be with you. I'm your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. The Cannabis Right to Know Act for California, SB 1097, is officially set to be heard. California has led the nation with cannabis legalization, and here's an opportunity for California to lead with consumer protection. The bill is carried by Senator Pam, a pediatrician from California and co-sponsored by emergency physicians, the OBGYN physicians, and pediatricians. The bill is not about legalization or criminalization. It's about the right to know that cannabis has serious health effects. California's emergency department visits for cannabis has gone up 54% between 2016 and 2019. And in San Diego, we treat 37 patients a day with cannabis-related emergencies. Over 10 years ago, I met parent victims of the opioid crisis. They were angry at the medical community for overprescribing. And yet we had no idea that people were angry at us for prescribing too much. All we saw were patients who were mad at us for not giving them enough. Our emergency departments became a candy land for opioids. And when I first spoke up, I was called not compassionate, going against the grain. But I knew I was right because I was talking to parents whose kids have been harmed. The doctors were only seeing patients who were demanding drugs. Now I am meeting a very similar group of parent victims. These parents have lost their children to marijuana to cannabis. Their children have severe addiction, psychosis, or have even died. The California Right to Know Bill will provide accurate, visible, science-based health and safer information, allowing people to recognize a legal product and make informed decisions about use. With that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, my name is Marina, and thank you for taking my question. I appreciate High Truths podcast taking on some of these important issues. Um, I am asking this question because I have a son that is having some issues. It looks like he is possibly having some marijuana withdrawal, possibly some psychosis, and he has quit, but he's having a lot of um, issues with dealing with the withdrawal and wondering how long it's going to be this way and if he's permanently damaged his brain. So that leads me to my question, which is how long does it take to recover from marijuana addiction? And what can parents do to support their son or daughter as they recover? Thank you again for taking my question. Thank you, Marina, for your question. I am so sorry for the struggles you and your son and family are going through. Addiction does not affect just the individual. It's a disease of the family. And to answer your question, I've invited a fellow emergency physician Let's chat with him a bit and then introduce your question. Dr. Louis Profeta is a nationally recognized, award-winning writer and emergency physician at St. Vincent's Hospital in Indianapolis. He is a dynamic and sought-after public speaker and writer, as well as frequent guest at TV and radio, who has gained critical acclaim for various essays. 
He's been named LinkedIn Top Voice for Readership in Healthcare and Top Voices in Healthcare related to COVID-19. Check out his best-selling book, The Patient in Room 9 Says He's God. You can find Dr. Profeta's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Louis Profeta, welcome to High Truths. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. How fun to talk to a fellow emergency physicians and advocate on the dangers of drugs and alcohol. And uh, we have to put a shout out to John Holstein because he connected us. Uh, John is a major advocate of emergency medicine and suggested that we connected. And he made a really good, as we say in Hebrew, shidduch between me and you. <laughs> Outstanding. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> he did. Yeah. And uh, you moved your schedule around because you're an emergency physician and you had to change your shift. Somebody was out. You had to fill in. And so how was your shift? Uh, it was extremely busy today. Extremely busy. I went in early this morning about 6 a.m. and uh, just got off. Um, wow. So you must be tired and still uh, have the energy for a podcast. Yeah, that's all right. That's us, right? Tell, yeah. tell us some of the things you saw. COVID trauma. Cannabis well, we hyperemesis syndrome. I haven't seen any COVID. Today. I haven't seen any COVID in probably three weeks, maybe even longer. Um, we we certainly did have traumas today. We had a fair amount of drug drug overdoses. I had one cannabis hyperemesis syndrome today that I can recall. And then you know we're seeing all the stuff that people didn't come in for for all these all this time during COVID. Uh, a lot of people have let their health um, sort of the preventative health issues sort of wane and have they've neglected it. So we're seeing a lot of people with advanced cancers and renal failure and heart failure and sepsis. And it's really quite tragic. And, and, and you know, too, that we're seeing probably mental health issues at a level that I never thought uh, I'd see in my career. Uh, the most I, I think I've ever seen every day. Yeah, I, I think things are not that much different between um, Indiana and San Diego in that we, I, I call myself an internal medicine doctor for psychiatric patients. We started rounding on all our psych patients because they live in our ER for two weeks. Yeah. It, it's not psychiatric boarding in the emergency department. I say it's psychiatric living and the, oh. the worst place ever for a, a patient with a mental health person. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. It's amazing how busy we are. So uh, you saw cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Have you heard of scrometing? No. What is that? Scrometing? Screaming what? and vomiting. Oh, yes. Oh, I guess so. Absolutely. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that the best word ever? I, I, I'm, I advocated for the CDC to make it an ICD-10 code. It should be. And can I tell you, of all the things I've accomplished in medicine, that's probably the best thing that I've done is to popularize that that word. Because when I talk to patients, if I say, hey, you have cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, they're like, what are you talking about? But if I say you're scrometing, they're like, I guess I am. Yes, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, we count 37 cannabis-related diagnoses a day in San Diego County. And I see one every single shift. And, and, uh, and I bet that's true around the United States. Just one? I mean, yeah, I at least one a shift, and probably for us closer to 10 a shift, I bet. Wow. Wow. And and cannabis-induced psychosis? Well, I, whether it's uh, cannabis-inducing it or if it's, uh, I mean, you know how hard a, a lot of these, these psychoses are to determine whether it's cannabis-induced or whether it's um, people with underlying psychoses that are self-medicating with cannabis. Um, that's where we sort of get confused about some of the stuff, but I'll tell you, we see a lot of, a lot of methamphetamine induced psychosis and all those people are also on cannabis too. So, which is it? I don't know. Um, I mean, we see a lot of meth here in Indiana too, and a lot of meth induced psychosis, tons of it. Yeah. I call it M&M, meth and marijuana, yes. meth and methadone. Yeah. We have, um, a lot, a lot of that combination. We actually did a study of um, all the urine drug screens in our emergency department, sent it to the University of Maryland, and they, they actually selected five different emergency departments around the country to do kind of surveillance. And 76% of all our urine drug screens were positive for meth. So wow. It's, yeah, it's that's a little sad. I, I, bet, I bet we're close. For the people that we're doing urine drug screens on, I bet a solid 50% of our patient population is positive for meth. Wow. Yeah. So I think it's heading from the West uh, to the East, not as much as in the East Coast, but I, um, interesting that it's hit. Well, we had a lot of meth. No, we had a lot of meth a long time ago. I mean, remember, before it was being shipped across the borders, from the, uh, uh, it was being manufactured in the farmlands of the Midwest. 
I mean, Indiana was a hotbed of meth, especially Southern Indiana, because a lot of your, your product that was utilized to manufacture meth when they were using it for the old, what they called the Nazi method of making methamphetamine really involved utilizing, uh, you know, pseudoephedrine, it involved using matches and, and items like that. And a lot of your chemicals were sort of farm chemicals. Um, and so it was being manufactured all over um, Southern Indiana, especially. And then Indiana passed laws that you couldn't you couldn't uh, buy you know pseudoephedrine as easily like over the counter. It had to get you know one packet per pharmacy. But I remember once going into a drugstore and a grocery store and seeing somebody literally buying the entire lot of pseudoephedrine from the Marsh grocery store down the street from us. Yeah, so we we passed a law in California, so you can't do that. So like, you right. know, if you yeah, go you to if you if you have a little allergies and sniffles and go to the grocery store, it like beeps yeah. beep 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 beep. Now like only one. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So and and that's that's old school now. We got they got the better stuff coming from Mexico. Yep. yep. What about um, what about fentanyl? I mean, we see a ton of it. Yeah, uh, and, and not only that, we're seeing fentanyl, and this is where I I talk to a lot of the kids on the college campuses. Um, how many of our overdoses are fentanyl overdoses? And then the students will say, well, no, I don't use fentanyl. I was just taking a bar of Xanax. And almost all the bars of Xanax are fentanyl. They're yeah. pressed fentanyl to look like the shape of a, of a bar of Xanax. Yeah. And we're even seeing some marijuana gummies uh, laced with fentanyl now. So it's, it's popping up and everything. I work New Year's Eve in one of our rural or one of our really nice sort of suburban upscale ERs. I hate and, that shift, the New Year's Eve. Yeah. And we, and I had two, you know, upper middle class. In fact, one was a dentist, uh, I believe was a heroin overdose um, or it was a, a, some sort of doctor that was a fentanyl overdose. Um, and I think they thought they were snorting cocaine and it turned out to be fentanyl. And both went into cardiac arrest or both went into respiratory arrest were saved by the medics. So. Yeah, it's very safe. There's there there's no um, safe drug supply now unless you get something from a, you know, a legal. Right, so what's, the, what's the world coming to when you can't trust your drug dealers? Yeah, very sad. <laughs> do, and do you include um, fentanyl in your urine drug screen? No, we don't. I mean, it uh, it it's not you know methadone. It's you know it says opiates, but whether it's separated out exactly for fentanyl, I mean, it all looked. You know what it is, so you don't yeah. really need it. I mean. Yeah. Who cares? I mean, they, you, they're pinpoint pupils, they're, they're cyanotic, they're blue, they yeah. wake up with Narcan, it's heroin or fentanyl. As far as I'm concerned, it's all the same thing anyway. So what difference does it make? Well, uh, I'll, the, so we have a law, I'm proud actually, that I I wrote my very first law and uh, SB 864 in California that will require hospitals to include fentanyl in the drug screen. It doesn't matter when you're saving them, just like you said pinpoint sure. pupils, you know, to do yeah. that. But but the way I found it's now standard of care in, in um, hospitals around San Diego. The way it makes a difference is that patient who is using, you know, cocaine or, or Xanax, it's like, no, 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 that's not what I'm using. And then you and then you tell them. Yeah. And their eyes are open and and they're gonna go home and do something different. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Marina, uh, called into high truths and has a question for you. She has a son with cannabis use disorder. And her question is how long does it take to recover from marijuana addiction? A tough question. I have no idea. Um, I mean, do people ever really recover from addiction. Um, I mean, you're always, I think probably have a yearning from it and that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I don't know the answer to that, you know. Um, oh, so, um, so Marina, what I could tell you is the withdrawal from marijuana, which is a real um, physical symptom, that takes about two weeks. And I think oh. what you're saying, Dr. Profeta, is, is right, that addiction is a chronic relaxing brain disorder. And it may be a lifetime of, of craving, depending on how early you used and how much you used. Um, um, so recovery, but I think people takes about six months or sometimes a year of being off drugs to get your real brain back. Yeah. I think that's probably accurate without a doubt. Yeah. And, uh, Marina, her other question is what can parents do to help their sons or daughters if they're in recovery or they have a problem? 
Well, I mean, the big thing is don't do it yourself. Um, and, you know, un- just like anything else, understanding that I think that, you know, addiction, especially it, it runs the gamut, not only being of drugs, but that whole impulsive behavior, whether you're addicted to gambling, whether you're addicted to alcohol or food or exercise, uh, you know, it, it manifests itself in a variety of different ways, but just, you know, being supportive and, and understanding that, that that, especially with marijuana, because everybody is doing it. Oh my goodness. I mean, it's really hard to stay away from that. You know, if you truly are addicted to it, to stay away from that kind of um, that kind of pressure, especially if you have any degree of socialization out in the in the real world. I mean, it's pretty hard to overcome. Yeah, you know, just being supportive. And and I I love your suggestion of setting a good example in the first place, right? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that, I think that's one. But once there is a problem, I th- I think it's important to to reach out, get professional help. Um, this is not something that you can fix on your own. It's a medical condition that, that needs help and, and support. Um, and, and I'd, I'd say, you know, get the professional help and support groups, um, if you have a a problem. But you also have to want to do it. I mean, you know how, how that is. Um, you, we see this all the time from a clinical standpoint, you Mm -hmm. see people come in with issues related to marijuana, uh, use and, let's face it, the vast majority of them do not want to stop. Um, I mean, they feel good. They feel good doing it. It relaxes them, they'll tell you, or calms them, a thousand different things. And, you know, I try to have those talks on on college campuses. And if you you sit there in front of a young person and you tell them that marijuana is dangerous, they're not going to believe you. They just won't. I mean, there's way too much out there. And, and not only that, there's people, the physicians all over this country that are advocating its use for, for one thing or another. So you, they'll find something to support their contention that it's okay for them to use it. And, and you know, if you're standing up there, if an old guy like me standing up there telling not to smoke weed, uh, they're, ju- they're just going to shut you off. When, when the real message, especially, I guess, acutely for somebody like me is I don't want them on the, I don't want them on the benzos. I don't want them on, the, on overusing alcohol. I want them to stay away from the, the opiates. Um, is marijuana a reasonable default? I don't know. I mean, I don't want them doing that either. So, uh, Lewis, I, I ask every single patient, because I, I mean, I'm into the issue of drugs, every patient, like, sure. you know, if you use drugs or not, at how old were you when you started? Um, tell me about your drug journey. I haven't met a single patient that ended up overdosing on fentanyl, intentionally or unintentionally, that didn't start priming their brain at a young age with marijuana, not one. And, and um I don't know. I, my, I feel our role in emergency medicine is doing what you do with other things about drugs, but with marijuana. You just tell them the stories. Tell them. Yeah, I, I think that that is. I think that that is a reasonable. I think that. It, I think that what you're saying is is a, a reasonable observation. Um, I guess the question is whether you think that marijuana is a gateway drug or not. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, you meet some people and some addictionologists, especially that will tell you that it is. You'll meet others uh, that say, you know, that it isn't. Um, I think that any, you know, the, it's I, just. I, I haven't met anybody who says that it isn't. That's not like has a conflict of interest of some sort. Oh, I hear you. No, I, <laughs> I completely, I completely get it. But the thing is, though, is that people are going to use whether it's alcohol, whether it's caffeine, whether they're going to start something. Okay. Um, and it is just uh, again, every you know, there's a thousand behaviors that are gateway behaviors to other things that aren't, you know, aren't the right, the best thing to do. And I'll I'll tell you the one, the one thing, uh, and I, and I, again, we all have our different approaches to how to get, how to get young people not to, to engage in the use of marijuana. Uh, Greg Gutfeld in his book, The Gutfeld Chronicles has a really sort of funny line in there. He says, uh, don't buy weed, buy a suit. And what he means by that is that if you're gonna smoke weed, wait till you make it to smoke weed. I think that there's certainly something to be said for marijuana, especially in developing brain for adolescents to have exactly. an impact on neuropsychiatric development. I think that that, I think that that evidence is there. I think it is real. And, um, you know, we talk about productivity. The one study that really sort of stands out to me when I talk to young people about the use of marijuana is that when you look at people that use marijuana on a regular basis, Overall, they have a lower lifetime earning potential. And what I mean by that is that if you're 
your goal in life is to always work for somebody else and being at uh, the mercy of somebody else to be able to support your family and to live the life you want to live. And you want to smoke marijuana and do marijuana. If that's your goal in life, I guess that's your goal in life. But if your goal in life is to be a leader, succeed, or be productive, that's not the way you start. And that kind of argument, uh, or that kind of discussion, especially with young people, actually resonates better with them than having that argue, uh, having that discussion that is bad for you because they just won't believe you. I can- I, I like your approach because well, I mean, you you talk to kids so you, so you know what what works and. Sure. And what you said about buying a suit instead of buying weed, that's that's science-based, right? If we had everybody protect their brain, we call it keep it alive till you're 25. If you don't use alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, or any drugs until you're 25, we'd have less addiction in the United States, period. Without uh, on, a doubt. On Without everything, doubt. right? Um, yeah. And I know that you're... It's interesting you said because you say people use anyway they they will but I think our our job um, that we're not doing with marijuana that we are doing with alcohol and fentanyl and everything else but we're not doing with marijuana is just having an informed uh, public people are told that this is good for you it's benign it's it's a medicine it's natural uh, and they're not hearing. Um, um, the drug interactions, the cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, the psychosis, um, you know, the, the, the suicides. They're not hearing, they're not making an informed decision. And I think that that's what makes marijuana different um, than and alcohol and tobacco. People already know that about alcohol yeah. tobacco, and tobacco. And they're not getting the truth on, on marijuana um, in, in that sense. And you do an incredible job when when actually tell us about what you do one of one of the, your many essays is frat boy talk on sex drugs and drinking you go to college campuses around the country and you're able to change attitudes i admire you for doing that tell us tell us what you your tactics well yeah i i think i like back up a little bit and tell you where it came from i mean it didn't just sort of uh you know materialize in thin air we almost lost a child, our oldest boy, Max, uh, when he was in college, not from drugs, but he got sick with uh, cancer. He got leukemia, it was at Sloan Kettering for, for a very long period of time. And, and thank God, you know, he rallied, he's in remission, his, his school was amazing and saving his life. But while he was going through chemo, periodically I would fly back, I was sleeping in a chair next to his bed and I'd fly back to Indy to try to work a few shifts because still had to make a living. And in two days in a row, I took care of um, some young men from the north side of Indianapolis from very well-to-do suburbs that both died of heroin overdoses. And they were the same age as my sons. And I had to go in and tell their moms, you know, with their manicured nails and their, you know, their Louis Vuitton bags, that their kids were dead. And while my own kid, the same age, was languishing, going through chemotherapy and you know, I moved, was moving my younger, youngest son into college and was fraternity and just kept seeing the whole, you know, just I was terrified of possibly losing another kid and going through that. And it was all on my mind. I'd written an article at that time called When the Lion Kills Your Child about how nobody was paying attention to heroin when it was tearing up Baltimore and it was in the trailer parks. It wasn't until it started showing up at Highland Park that everybody started to pay attention to heroin. It wasn't until it moved into white suburbs that all of a sudden heroin and fentanyl became a problem. So I was moving my son into college and I I kept warning him about all these different things. And he finally said, hey, dad, you just want to talk to our pledge class. And I said, would you mind? Would, Would you let me? And he said, yeah, and I got that, you know, and it, it, nothing seemed to be resonating with them. They were just sort of blank. I talk about heroin. I talk about marijuana. I talk about alcohol. And you can tell it just wasn't resonating with them. And finally, one of them asked me that question, you know, all the yard docs get, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And I lost my shit. I mean, I just went at them. I said, worst thing I've ever seen is look on your mom and dad's face when I tell them you're dead. Okay, and I just and I said, how about if I play the role of your father and show you what it looks like? And I started screaming like a father whose kid had been killed, had died. And I saw their their entire face, the entire look, their entire affect completely changed. Okay, because we can have these discussions with young people and you hear it over and over. Well, they don't think it's going to happen to them. No, that's not the issue. That's not why they engage in these reckless behaviors. They engage in these behaviors because they have no idea what love is. It's so superficial. 
okay? And they will not understand it until they have children of their own. And the only thing you can do is you've got to sort of give them a paradigm shift. Let them see the world as, as it might appear when um, they when somebody they love, you know, has to bear the, the bear witness to what they have gone through and see what it looks like at that point in time, okay? So you have to give them that sort of paradigm shift. And so I, I went home that day and a, after that, I gave that talk, all the students came up and they were hugging me and shaking my hand and said, oh my God, Dr. Fed, I, I never knew. And I learned more here in this one, you know, and I went home and I wrote an article called a Sunday talk on sex, drugs, drinking and dying with the frat boys. And it wasn't out for just a short period of time where I was getting calls from colleges all over the country going, hey, we got a problem, will you come here? So I take that reality of what it's like to tell your parent that you've been killed and I, and I stick it right in their face and I call them to task for it because that's literally what you have to do to these, these, these younger people. Um, you know, you can, you can try to have these discussions about the dangers of it. It goes right by them. Okay. And uh, so you have to be sort of down in the, in the mud with them. You've got to be dirty with them. And do these, you know, they teach you that scare tactics doesn't work on kids. This is your brain on drugs, but yeah, you, right. but you do something a little different, right? Well, yeah, but it's, it's not the scare tactics of you might die. Okay. It's the scare tactics of what your family and what the world will look around you with your death, because the scare tactics for them, because they're not going to believe it, that they could possibly die. But let me tell you something. If you can put the visual image of their mom and dad screaming and laying on the floor and pulling hunks of their hair out and punching walls till they break their fingers. Uh, and, and even one father that I took care of that put a bullet through his brain after I told him the news. If you can, if you can leave them with that picture, okay, it, it resonates with them. It makes them think and, and, and make smarter choices. And, 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 you know, this is where maybe we have a little, I'm gonna say different opinion, but listen, all I want them to do is not to die. Okay. And I, I, I don't, I don't think we have to, a different opinion. No, no, on that. but I mean, from fentanyl and, and it's sort of a give and take kind of stuff. So I don't want them wrecking a car. I don't want them dying of drug and or alcohol overdoses. I don't want them mixing uh, Xanax without vodka. This is what they're doing on college campuses. So if it means that they got to smoke weed in order not to do that other stuff. But you know what? Yeah. Okay. Let me see if I can, if I could change your framework. Just a little. Give me a sec. All right. There's there's a, a paradigm and you can't mix it too. So on one end, there's people, you know, mixing these drugs and, and having serious addictions. And that requires like a harm reduction approach. Like, really? I just want you not to use the Xanax. Am I going to tolerate the marijuana? Yeah, fine. You know, I mean, the patients that we have with serious addictions who come to their ER, that's that they deserve a harm reduction approach. On the other hand, there's kids who are, you know, seven years old, eight years old, they starting their first use of marijuana experimenting at age 14, 15. Ask, you know, ask your patients who are using drugs, how old were you when you started using drugs? You'll be surprised. Oh, I know. I know how old. 12 years old, right? And it's always, it's always marijuana. Sure. So if we can prevent, if we, so that approach, you wouldn't, you don't want to use a harm reduction approach on, 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 in primary prevention in that pediatric population and the kids who never used drugs before and going to college for the first time, you know, that's a danger zone. Now you need to learn how to, you know, how to say no in a nice way, have code words, how to prevent and protect your brain, how to protect your brain. Uh, you only got one brain. Sure. And, and, and so that population, um, needs to, to do what you, what I've heard you say doing with alcohol. Like, don't give alcohol to people. They need to ask for you. I've heard you say that. I love what you have to say that. And the same approach for marijuana or, or and I heard what you say with sharing drugs. That's, you know, about the analogy of, of, of like giving someone, you know, having a loaded gun. If that, is that okay? Sure. Absolutely. And, 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 and which is why I'm not a good speaker for junior high students <laughs> in grade school. I'm not the guy. Yeah. Okay. I'm not the guy. Um, I, I'm, I'm the guy for later. Okay. <laughs> and, Fair. and so, and which requires a multi-pronged approach. There's no one paintbrush that paints this entire thing in, in one color in that certain things resonate with some people, certain things resonate with another. I, I will tell you that when I speak, um, 
almost every time the, the young people come up to me afterwards and go, oh my gosh, that was the, the best thing I've ever heard in terms of this. I promise I won't do this. I will not do this. I've done this in the past. I'm going to call and, and, and share with our audience what, what, what your approach is when you hear about um, college kids sharing drugs, their Ad, the Adderalls or their Xanaxes. You mean in, in terms of t- talking to them about it? Yeah. Well, I, one of the things that I, I'll bring up now and then is I'll go, you know, I'll ask fraternities and sororities. I mean, how many of you allowed handguns in your house? And man, they look at you like you're crazy. I'll say, well, why don't you allow handguns in your in your? Why aren't your fraternity and sorority members allowed to have carry their own firearms, keep their own guns in their in their rooms? I mean, we're allowed to have guns in America. Why aren't they allowed to keep guns in their rooms? And I said, is it because you're afraid they might pick it up when they're drunk, or they might not they may not wield it in a responsible manner, they may not use it in a manner that it's meant to be used, or they may give it to somebody who doesn't know how to handle it, or they may leave it out where somebody can steal it. Well, guess what? You've just described every prescription drug of abuse in America. And yet uh, prescription drug abuse resulted more deaths in America last year than firearms. So we need to treat those drugs the same way as we would treat a firearm. Because people, when they come in to rob your house, they're looking for guns and drugs in addition to money. They're both just as dangerous. They both have the same impact and they have to be wielded and cared for in the same responsible manner. And that means depressed people shouldn't have them. People that abuse alcohol shouldn't have them. People that uh, misuse them shouldn't have them uh, and on and on. So, you know, it's one of the things that I'll talk about in that, in that, uh, in that manner. And also, you know, most of the deaths that we see are going to be a combination overdoses are going to be either benzos and alcohol or opiates and alcohol or opiates by themselves or cocaine or meth, or they're going to be sharing Adderall and especially people that shouldn't be on Adderall. How are they going to come down from it? Well, they're going to come down from it by taking a sedative, by using alcohol or using uh, fentanyl or opiates. And you're going to be contributing to that cycle and that eventual death in that individual. Um, And so all you can do is say, here's the world that I see from what I do in the emergency department. Here's what your life will look like. Here's what your mom and dad will look like, your brothers and sisters. Here's how you'll be forgotten. Here's how you'll just be a cautionary tale of woe that that other that your friends are to tell their own kids one day, how your your siblings will grow up to resent the fact that you did this to their mom and dad, how your parents most likely are going to get divorced. They're going to die years younger. They're never going to be happy again. That's all you can paint with 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 the the people that age. Um, At least that's my experience. And, um, and it resonates with them. They, they get that. They can wrap their heads around that. But I'll tell you something. If I stand up there and tell them that marijuana is dangerous, they're not going to believe me one bit. And they're just going to turn me right off like a light bulb. So that message, once it gets to that point, they don't believe you. That, that message has to be driven home at those younger ages. And then you have to work your, hopefully in 10 years from now, that population will uh, be more likely to understand it, but come on, half of their kid, half of their teachers are are using marijuana too. So um, that that's sadly true. One of the things, and I'm you know perfecting my my speech into people um, listening to me on the issues of marijuana. Using scrometing, for example, has been helpful. The other thing is, I'll have my patients who are using go straight to the Isaac website. It's the International Academy on Science and Impact of Cannabis, and they have a library with a bunch of medical literature. And they'll say, you know, I need it. I need a gummy to help me sleep. I said, well, why don't you go look at the literature for sleep? You know, or I need it because I'm a I was a veteran and I have PTSD. Uh, that was my last patient um, from yesterday, and I just had them go straight to the website and read the literature and see how that's not true. And then people, I don't know if I've convinced them, but at least they're, 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 they're open to looking at the science. Well, I mean, we just, I mean, no offense, but we just went through a major pandemic and half this country was uh, resistant about getting vaccinated. I mean, you could have pointed them to the CDC and they wouldn't care less. They want their ivermectin or they weren't going to get vaccinated because, you know, so good luck with that. Touche, touche. People okay. don't <laughs> don't miss that. But but so, I I do I, get people to l- at least look at that, right? Um, yeah, and I uh, and I think the the I try to be honest. I try to be a real person. I try to understand the world, the pop culture world around me. I try to give them options. One of the jokes that I'll make a lot of times is I'll say to them, um, you know, especially when it talks about productivity and the use of marijuana 
product products. I say, um, you know, people always ask me, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, they're pre-med, they want to get into med school. How do I go about getting into med school? And I said, well, you know, med school is real competitive. I mean, you've got to be at the top of your class. You got to make sure that you perform better than about everybody else. And the best way of doing that is to buy weed. I said, you got to buy a whole bunch of weed. You got to roll a <laughs> bunch of fatties. You pass it out to all the other pre-med students. Then you go to the library and you study. So get all your other classmates high <laughs> that are pre-med trying to compete for whatever you're competing for. And you have a good opportunity of blowing right past them. And, and, there you and go. You, 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 you were a gunner in med school, weren't you? Well, they get that. But, that, but <laughs> it's that kind of stuff that resonates with that, that group. Okay. Wow. They can understand the productivity. They can understand that, hey, I didn't get up and study. I didn't, you know, it burned I, me out the whole next I day. I need to be taking notes here. I, yeah. I like, I like. <laughs> come, come and listen to me talk. Yeah. Come and I, hang out. All right. We should hang out. Uh, you know, the, the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism has dietary guidelines on, on, on alcohol. Um, uh, my uh, two kids in school don't want to hear that. They, they are, they're actually in the, Wow, there's a shocker. <laughs> well, I mean, they they know it because I'm their mom, but you know, there's a huge military drinking culture, right? Uh, um, but at least there are dietary guidelines. It says, you know, it's uh, no more than three at a time um, for girls or seven a week and four at a time for men, 14. And, and if you me exceed that, then you're an at-risk drinker. And, you know, my daughters would say, then our whole class are at-risk drinker. Then it's like, okay, well, then just yeah. so you know, then yeah. you're, the whole fraternity are at-risk drinkers. But yeah. there are guidelines. Yeah, no, and I and I discuss those issues. You know, yeah. what, what could potentially constitute, you know, because almost everybody that you talk to that age that develops alcoholism um, will, will say, hey, I started drinking heavy in college. Yeah. Um, that's when it really started picking up for them. And, you know, and I do, I do bring that up and you can only do what you can do. Um, right. I, I don't have all the answers. I just know that, um, you know, one of the things I, I think that we have failed as physicians, and I've said this in many of the sort of the corporate and national talks that I give to, to doctor groups, is that we think our sphere of influence ends at the hospital doors. We couldn't be more wrong. Um, you know, it's one thing to do a podcast, but we've got to get out there and we've got to be in front of these kids. We've got to be in their face. We've got to offer ourselves up as experts out there because we know, especially us in the in the trenches in the emergency department, and we know more about this and the effects and the impacts it has not only to the person at hand, but to the sort of the global sphere of of people that are one degree of separation from that away from that drug user, whether it's the parents, whether it's the teachers, whether it's siblings, um, whether it's their bosses that we need to be out there and we need to be uh, offering ourselves up as experts and talking and trying to offer solutions and being voices of reason. Because you put ER docs in front of people, man, our credibility is pretty damn good, yeah. especially in the post-COVID era. I mean, we were there and um, people listened to us. And uh, I just said to hell with it. I'm going to do, do what I can. I'm going to get out there. Hopefully people will join me. You know, and, and some have, uh, whenever I go and give a talk, I advertise on like EM docs that I'm going to be in this area. If any ER docs want to come and oftentimes they do. And man, I love it. I love having them there. And yeah. I provide them as a resource for all those young, those students in that, in that environment. I was at Missouri state giving a talk and some ER docs from Missouri state showed up. I was at, uh, Oregon, some from Oregon came and, uh, in Atlanta, some from Atlanta came and, uh, it's great because I can That's give awesome. them local resources. If you if you come to San Diego, let me know. Get me invited. All right. <laughs> um, what's your advice for for parents dropping off their kids in college? Um, well, you go back. You can go and read a couple of my articles. Um, you know, I wrote an article called "College Is No Place for a Kid" um, about whether you is your kid really emotionally ready for. Um, you, I mean, you grew up in Israel, or you're born in Israel. I, I was born in Israel. Yeah. Okay. But, um, you know, one of the things that I like about sort of that uh, Israeli culture is that that deferment of college, whether, you know, it's military service. A lot of these kids, especially in the U.S., especially in the post-COVID kind of time, these kids are not mature enough to handle that environment. And um, 
they're starving for socialization. They're absolutely starving for it. They will crawl across the desert for to be socialized. And um, if, if you don't feel comfortable right now leaving your kid to take care of your house for six months while you go out of the country, then you have no business sending your kid off to college right now. And there's nothing wrong, that whole notion of a gap year. And I don't mean, a, when I make a joke about it, I don't mean going and traveling through Costa Rica for a year, Thailand. A gap year, in my mind, is working at the gap for a year. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but doing something in construction or just working, you know, landscaping, I don't care what it is. You, it, college is always going to be there. And deferring that kind of, of uh, that that prog progress in life, there's nothing wrong with it. And I encourage more and more parents to consider delaying their kids' um, exodus to college. I, I, first of all, you read my mind because I was going to ask you about something from Israel. And the second one is I love what you have to say. I mean, and, and it's okay. Like when my, my oldest son, um, you know, we're doing all these college interviews and, you know, you know, he's got a high achieving family. And we went, we even put deposit on the dorms of a college he got accepted to. And he would, we were driving home and he said, I don't want to go. It's like, perfect. I don't want to, he like, but I felt failure as a mom. Everybody else's kids going away for college. He doesn't want to go. And it's like, you know what? You don't want to go. We don't want to go. Well, He's, it's funny. It's he, funny. He stayed boy. at home. Sometimes boys, their brain isn't, you know, they're not as mature as girls. I think? Absolutely. <laughs> and so I think he recognized that in himself. And his goal in life in high school was to get best hair at Poway High School. And, and he did. Um, but his grades weren't so great. And then he stayed home, went to junior college, cut his hair, got good grades, and got into dental school. You know, he just needed, his brain needed a little bit, a few more Absolutely. years. Absolutely. And, and it's one of the things that I do, too, is that um, so many of these kids on, on, on college campuses, while colleges have these support networks and stuff, man, I'll tell you, I, I think a lot of times that they, the, the young people don't trust them. They don't trust that the stuff's going to be private. And I'll call these students. I say, listen, if you find yourself in a position that you can't handle, email me. Reach out to me on social media. And I've called some of these kids' parents. They've reached out to me after I've given talks. And they said, listen, I, I, I can't handle college. I, I'm doing too many drugs. Or I'm drinking too much. Or I'm depressed all the time. I, I'm not ready for this environment. But I know if I call my parents and they spend a lot of money, they're going to be devastated. And, um, and you said it yourself. I felt like a, a failure. And that's how these students, uh, so many of these students feel that they don't, that their parents are going to be incredibly disappointed. And I say, listen. You let me call your parents. And I've called some of these parents. I've called up and said, you know, my name is Dr. Profeta. I gave a talk at your kid's college. Your kid reached out to me. He's having some issues. He wants me to call. And, and every parent is unbelievably grateful. Right. And, better, better be home. And, and, and if that means that I, that I put myself out, run interference, fine. I'll do it. I don't care. It takes me two seconds. I do this for a living. Okay. And, and you give that kind of advice to to people in the dorms, like, hey, what do I have, what do I do if I know somebody's using drugs in the fraternity, in the college, and they're having trouble, and, and you have... Oh, I tell them to call their parents, yeah. and, and, and I think that we, we spend, and, and, I, and, and it's one of the things that you have to recognize about the beauty of college is how idealistic these kids are, and I, I hate calling kids or adults. Um, they think that all the problems can be solved by just talking it out, by being a friend. That's not true. Because so many of these issues like major depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, personality disorders, they start to manifest themselves in that adolescent period, that 18-year-old period, and right when they get into college. And these are way beyond the abilities of some second-year econ student to, to manage, okay, let alone even some of the counselors on, on, on college campuses, so, you know, you need to reach out to those kids' parents and just, even if it's anonymous and say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm classmate of your, your son, David, and I, I'm worried about his drug use and I think you need to know about it. Uh, the only reason I'm calling is because I really care about him. I know that he'd be upset if he knew it was me calling, so I'm not going to tell you who I am, but just let parents know. Right. Let them know. And, and sometimes kids need to go home and take a break and then come back. College is always going to be there. Yeah. yeah. And just because you mentioned Israel, you know, when, when my kids were going off to college, I had relatives from Israel saying, 
wow, you're sending your kids off to college. Isn't that scary? And I'm like thinking, a kid's 18. You guys send your kids at 18 to war. And they, they were thinking, yeah, but that's a very controlled environment. That they consider, and they're probably right, that they sending your right. kid to the military at age 18 is way safer than sending your kids to college. I think it probably is accurate. And uh, it allows them to grow up. They're in a structured environment with uh, a sense of common purpose and a common good. And um, which is, you know, I say, you know, let them, let them take a year off. Let them go work. They're going to spend all that money on Uber rides anyways. You might as well, you know, <laughs> get them to, to pocket some of that cash and, and to have some sense of ownership for their, for their college going in. And, man, I just, I just think that we rush it way too much. These kids are not mature enough right now. Or so many of them aren't. Um, I mean, go back, you know, to the 1950s or the 40s. This isn't the same 18 and 19 year olds. Uh, they're, they're not as emotionally mature as they were, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And um, I mean, it's just my opinion, but I think that the, the incidence of mental health issues, drug abuse, alcohol abuse tends to show that that's probably the case. Right. There's also a, a national push to normalize drugs, and they're in the butt of that, um, oh, where, where, where yeah. it's okay. Um, and, and they're being used as I think pawns from the, the big industry because there's, that, a national, there's a national push to normalize a ton of very bad behavior. Okay. And, um, you know, we get back to a, a time where we're more civil and we care about each other more and we do what's right for everybody. I think that we're, we're better off. Yeah. So uh, since we had such a fun debate on uh, marijuana issues, <laughs> I, thought <laughs> I'd, I'd, I thought I'd ask you about another essay that you wrote about these four words that may offend you, may also save you. Can, can you tell us about that? I'll tell you something. That is my favorite piece that I've written. And that, that article was published, has been published in magazines all over, the, all over the world. In fact, it's in a cookbook in Australia, veterinarian cookbook. It's their... their they're opening sort of article because there's a huge burnout in veterinarians in Australia and New Zealand. So they have this hardbound cookbook about, uh, I think, food for the human soul or something like that. And, um, you know, that article is, uh, I got invited to speak at Columbia University at uh, a conference given at Columbia. I pretty much got booed off the stage, but I didn't care. <laughs> it, dealt, it, dealt with burn, it dealt with burnout, okay? Because they all, the whole issue was about burnout. And here yeah. I've been practicing 27 years at a level one trauma center. And I, had, I was working more clinical hours than even my junior partners. And I still love it. Man, I love being an ER doc. I'm not burned out. So I figured they'd want to know. You, you know. Have you never been burned out? Well, I'm, I'm burned out physically. And yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, like COVID sort of burned me out. I, I, I don't think I could find an ER doctor who's honest, um, uh, who won't say that at some point in their career they felt burned well, out. Yeah, yeah. But I, but I, I mean, at the well, end of that shift, aren't you just happy to get out of there? Oh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, but the thing is, though, is I also embrace that heroism, too. And yes. what I mean by that is that we have done, again, in medicine, we do a really poor job embracing the heroism of doing a good job on days when you just don't give a shit, okay? And there are plenty of days, okay, as a doctor, well, I could care less, but I still go in there and I do a good job. And man, that's heroic. When you can do something where you really don't care <laughs> to be there that day and you can provide good care and you can maybe save somebody's life or- So that that's where- that's where I I don't I bet you at the end of the day we'll agree. But your point of the article, these four words may offend you, is that it's just a job, right? It, that being a doctor is just a job, and if you understand that, then you won't be burnt out. But when I read that you wrote that, I thought, but it's more than just a job. When I, what you know, it, it's it, it's, it's my identity. I identify my whole identity is being a doctor. Mine isn't. It isn't. It's being, I mean, I, because don't you even, you know, people come to you for little medical advice. This hurts, that hurts, or not my I, whole identity. I mean, I'm a mom, I'm a friend, well, but, but I, but I definitely embrace the, the I'm a doctor identity. Well, I, I, I love, I love being a doctor, but this, this goes back again to my son's illness and, and what I highlight in that article. The minute I heard that my son was sick, I dropped everything, drove to New York as fast as I could. I could yeah. care less if I right. was a doctor. I, I'm my son's dad. But, but, but being a doctor affected, 
how you took your son's illness because you know more than most people. Unfortunately, that makes it harder for you, frankly. Maybe. I, I, I would assume that's the case. But I think that all parents who are faced with the prospect of losing a child probably uh, respond the same way with abject terror. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't think it had as big of an issue with me is, um, is just being a dad. I mean, this is my son. And I was, and I thought I was going to lose my son. And, and. But you could be both. I'm a mother and a doctor. Well, yeah, but, but again, you said your my identity is my, my, is the, my wife's husband is my son's father. And that is, if you, you know, on, when they bury me one day, the, the thing that matters to me the most is the way my children and my wife look at me you know, those end of the days, uh, you know, it's not my, I'll, I'll take care of, I've taken care of 100,000 pa uh, patients in my career, but the three people, the four people that matter the most to me are my sons and my wife. And, um, and it goes back to that whole notion about if it's, if medicine's more than a job, tell me what, it, what is just a job? Because if you're, uh, if you're, again, if you're a bartender, if you're a construction worker, and you're feeding your family, and you're taking care of uh your children and you're providing a, a safe place for them and, and a respite for them and you're providing a way for them to, to man that's the most noblest thing in the world and I think all jobs have nobility and and um, I'm blessed to be able to do the job that I do but um, the mo my most important job is being uh, the dad to my kids and the husband to my wife and that's my job. I, you know, I guess I agree with you <laughs> because if I'm thinking back, you know, raising my children, especially when they're young, they'd be, oh, my mommy's a doctor. And I'd say, you know what? My, my most important job is being your mom. That's my most Absolutely. important job. I, I made sure that all my kids know that, that, yeah, I have a cool job, but being your mom is my most important job. Yeah. And I'm blessed to have a job that I really love, that I can make a good living, that I can see some really cool stuff have some wonderful experiences. It's a great job, but man, my life is, my kids and my wife, it's certainly not yeah. been a doctor, yeah. okay? But I, I'll do it as long as I can because I think I'm good at it. And, um, and I, I think the pandemic affected, I think we both have the same perspective. I think we're the same um, medical age in, in, in years of yeah. 100,000 patients that we've seen. But I will, I will tell you though, the pandemic did sort of, make me rethink that editorial a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I thought like, do I really need to come to this, you yeah. know, this cluster? Because this is no. going to be a cluster, you I know, an, and I do I want to be part of it? And and you know what? I, I pitched, it was like, this was, that's where I felt like that's my identity. This is my calling. I want to be, always want to be a doctor. I'm going to go in. You know, if God I, wants to take me now, he'll take me, you know. I, you know, I said that I was like, um, it was the first time that I thought that maybe it was a little bit bigger than just a job. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I had enough money. I can retire. My wife had sort of said, hey, maybe, you know, you don't have to work. Why don't you just quit? And I said, no, you know, I have to. I mean, I, I, I need to see what I can do. And if things look like it's really going to go south. And the doctors are dropping dead and the nurses, well, yeah, I'm going to come home and tape the house shut and we're going to hunker down for about four or five months. And um, but when you looked around and people at your colleagues weren't dying and everybody was doing OK and it was mostly at risk people. And then I started to feel a little bit better and I sucked it up until I got vaccinated. But I walked in there and man, I was crying the day I got vaccinated. I was so emotional. I know. It was what, special. What I saw, I mean, hundreds, you know, all those people dying in our ER. Man, that was awesome. I'm, I'm still not really recovered because I was a germaphobe before the pandemic. And so I was like, you know, washing my shoes and sleeping in another room. And, um, and uh, bef I got a little bit of freedom <laughs> with the vaccines, but not completely. And I still dress like a half astronaut and go to work and uh, well that, that's because you're in california us, <laughs> yeah we've been walking around without masks for ages now we don't okay. <laughs> and we don't pay as much for gas i know that's lucky lucky you but i, I didn't think it was a california thing i thought it was because i'm a i'm just a germaphobe I'm, <laughs> it's not a, people say oh, is it a political thing it's like I no i'm like, just afraid of germs <laughs> i was like free at last <laughs> i'm like oh. I you know, still, I still feel a little yeah, um, nah, tied down. I, I feel fine. I feel completely comfortable.
You you talk about well, there's so many things we could talk about. Um, corporate cowardice. I call it um, institutional stigma. How you know um, corporations are, are are afraid of saying the truth. I'll give you my, my example, and and I you call it corporate cowardice, which actually sounds better than what I call it, which is institutionalized stigma. I've had hospitals say they don't want the public to know, like what I told you, the 76% of, of our patients are positive for methamphetamine, because if that comes out to the public, then grandma may feel if she, that she doesn't want to go to that ER and sit next to somebody who's as a meth addict. Um, and, and they use that stigmatizing language because they haven't like realized this is not a, a hospital thing. This is a societal thing. I've had um, children's hospitals not want to publicize their data on pediatric exposures on the number one drug of, of kids get into and are poisoned with in age less than five years old. Okay, these are not little baby drug addicts, um, but is marijuana. And they don't want the that data out because it would stigmatize the parents. And that's what I call like, you guys are... You're 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 hiding this information, and and it resonated with what you talk about uh, corporate cowardice. Well, I, I listen. I <laughs> I mean, my my articles have been read tens of millions of times. I mean, I've got articles. I, I wrote one article called "A Look at Your Facebook Profile Before I Tell Your Mother You're Dead." It's probably been read 20, 30 million times. And um, I've been asked to, be, to write for damn near every major publication there is right now. And I said no to most of them because I don't want anybody editing my stuff. I'm going to say whatever I want to say. But I'm, I'm also very aware that because of the amount of social media following I have, that my words have weight and that I have to wield them responsibly. I don't want to write stuff just to be... Um, controversial. I want to, my goal has always been to make the world a little bit better, make people's lives a little bit better. That's my mission. Okay. And sometimes the hard truth is the hard truth, but it comes from a place of concern. Um, I'm not out to, to hurt people's feelings, but I have no issue about hurting people's feelings. And if I think that what they're doing is bad for, for the general welfare um, and, and calling people out saying, no, that's wrong. You're, you're, you're wrong. And, um, but I'm also open to, to listen to other ideas like, like yours, but I, you know, well, and, and I've learned, you know, I thought you've made me think about some things. Um, Baruch and, Hashem. Yes, you, you have. And, <laughs> good, good. you know, and, and um, but yeah, I, and, and like I said, you know, I, 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 I'm not the speaker for, a, for grade school and junior high kids that there needs to be a multi-pronged approach to that because people's attitudes change when they learn stuff um, as they go along with their lives. And I'll do my best to, to dispel the myths and answer the questions honestly and do what I can, but I, I just want people to stay alive. And um, I don't want to tell another, I don't want to go into that choir room. I don't want to tell these parents their kids have been killed. I mean, I had to tell that, it's, it's, to, it is. that to a young man today about his dad and uh, you know, and I just you never get used to it. Job. No, you never tell, get used to that. I tell these kids, I say, you know, I'll forget the look on your face five minutes after I zip up that body bag, but I'll hear the screams of your parents for the rest of my life. And so I, I'm going to do everything I can. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll die. God will say, God will say, did I do a good job? And God will point down to earth and say, see that kid there? Yeah, he's still around because of you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, 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 I hope for that when I get up there. Um, I, I wanted to close with one thing that you will probably find surprising and that I can't wait to share with my husband about something that I learned about you, one of the uh, things that you like to do to decompress. I don't know if you remember, I, I, I was listening to some of your, uh, your work, and you said that you enjoy mowing the lawn. I do. Oh, <laughs> My husband loves mowing the lawn. Oh, it is. It is so <laughs> cathartic. I had a lawn business when I was little. I had a lawn business when I was little. I loved it. And I always cut the lawn. I love working in my yard. I have a garden. I grow a ton of vegetables. Uh, isn't that crazy? It's, yeah. It, yeah, I will. Because I think he felt really like, like he's weird. And then he likes, you know, he's got a picture of himself with his lawnmower. And I'm going to oh tell him gosh. that he's not the only one. No, <laughs> I got a big I got There's a big another one. guy out there in Indiana. <laughs> I got a big Dixie chopper in my backyard. I, I, I love it. I love it. I got the weeds. I got everything. That's great. <laughs> um, do you have any final advice to Marina who, who called in about her, her son? Um, your kid will be okay. 
All right. They'll be, they'll be okay. Just love your kid. Listen to them. Talk to them. They'll be all right. Okay. Uh, be a mom first. And uh, just make sure that, that your kid knows how much you love them and tell them every day and, uh, and that you're not disappointed in them and that you're always going to be there for them and you're going to answer the questions. And should they always, if they find themselves out of control or in need of somebody, that you're going to be there. Thank you, Marina, for your question. And I, I, I wish you strength and health um, to you and your family and, and a complete recovery for your son's uh, substance use disorder. And thank you. Dr. Luis Profeta for enlightening us with High Truth Conversation. Thank you for reaching Pleasure. out to young adults and, as you say, making the world a better place. As an emergency physician, you save lives, stamp out disease on the front lines, and uh, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by CCR, the Center for Community Research, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. CCR is a San Diego-based nonprofit organization that has been recognized at the state and national level for community work on opioids, prescription drugs, methamphetamines, youth marijuana prevention, and data evaluation. Learn more about CCR at ccrconsulting.org. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.